David wrote about the relationship between God and his people. He described it in a very poetic way. He said, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Let me ask you, what do you need right now in order to be happy? Everybody has something, a centered joy that they're after. If I could only have this, fill in the blank, I'd be happy. That thing then is the object of your love. That thing is the object of your worship. The Lord beckons you to Him. In Isaiah 55, He said, Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. And I don't want there to be any confusion about thinking that God is saying we can be satisfied in the creation with literal drink or food of the creation. Rather, the Lord is presenting Himself to us as the source and the satisfaction of our joy. So a few verses later in the same chapter, Isaiah 55, he says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And again, a few verses after that, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Is he the river that satisfies your thirst for joy? If you do not drink from God's river, you are still going to drink. You will seek your soul satisfaction. In the 17th century, there was a French mathematical genius by the name of Blaise Pascal, converted to Jesus at the age of 31, died at the age of 38. But he wrote this during his time with the Lord. He said, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both. The desire to be happy. He said this is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. If you do not find your happiness in God, you will find it elsewhere. And it will cost you your soul. We are getting right at the essence of sin and the wages of sin, which is death. Exchanging the glory of the Creator for the creation. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. The Lord said in Jeremiah 2, My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, again, I want to be clear so that there's no mistake God is not the means to an end, like 
as if we could go through him to get joy. God is the great joy of the human soul because we were made for him. God is the giver and he is the gift. God is the source and he is the satisfaction. So that when you have found God, your search for joy is over. So this morning, are you among those people who have said with David, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Are you among those who have tasted from the river of God's delights? If so, I want to urge you this morning to the hard fight of pursuing joy in Jesus Christ with all of your might. So we're going to turn our attention today to the resources that we find for this fight in Philippians 4. Now the goal is that we keep our hearts rejoicing in the Lord always, as Paul wrote in Philippians 4 verse 4, so that we be content in Christ in any and every circumstance, as Paul so thoroughly wrote about And as we've been studying throughout this letter to the church in Philippians, in Philippi. So we are going to turn our attention to verse 6 this morning. And we will read down a little ways in this chapter. Paul wrote, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Two great enemies threaten the defenses of our joy, I think. If either one of these enemies breaches our defenses, we are going to lose our joy and our contentment in Christ. One of them is lust. The other is anxiety. If you're running after what the world affords, you can't be content in Christ. On the other hand, if you're running from the Lord's arrangements, you aren't content in Jesus either. You can't be. Joy cannot live in the same heart as anxiety or lust. So what do we do? Well, from Philippians 4, these several verses that we read together, I want to give you three things to press into in your fight for joy in Christ. And then we'll focus on two promises that we must receive. I want to give you again three things to press further into the Lord in the pursuit for joy in Christ. And the first is this. Keep praying. Just keep praying. If you have kids and you've watched Disney, try not to hear that in Dory's voice. 
Rhonda was actually laughing. I just read Rhonda's mind. Okay, just keep praying. <laughs> Some of you, what? Never mind. Again, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Don't you hate to be badgered? Really, I think we would all admit that we hate to be badgered. I don't know anyone who doesn't hate to be badgered. But you know what? The Lord actually seems to love it. He loves for us to badger. Jesus tells the story in Luke 18 of this widow who has a conflict with some oppressor and she longs for this this conflict to be resolved. And so she goes to the nearest judge, a man who is an unjust judge, and she keeps trying to meet with him to get justice against her adversary. But this man doesn't care about her in the least. I mean, she, she could die right in front of him, drop dead, and he wouldn't so much as blink. This man says, I don't fear God, and I don't fear man. I care nothing for this woman, but I'm going to give her justice unless she beat me down by her continual coming to me. And Jesus says in Luke 18, hear what the unjust judge says. Will not God Give justice to his elect. I want you to remember that word. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The Lord is saying the great judge, the just judge, chose you before the foundation of the world. And when you come to him, and when you persist in prayer, asking for this thing to be resolved, you are doing the very thing for which he chose you. That's why he uses the word elect. When you come to him, you are doing the very thing for which he chose you. Will he turn you ever away? So persist in prayer and do not give up. Don't grow weary. Later in the same chapter, the disciples turn away children from Jesus. And I believe that these two narratives are put side by side, one a parable, one an event, for a reason. Who badgers, who is more persistent than children? Who is more persistent than my two boys? Seriously. I don't remember the girls repeating themselves so much. I want milk. I want milk. I want milk. Just over and over and over again. I think these two incidences are put side by side. The disciples turning away these little children from Jesus. They they badger. They're going to aggravate him. And he says to his disciples, don't do that. He says, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them. I love it, have loved it, still do love it when my children put their hand in mine. Now my girls don't do it very much. Now and again, Leah, if we're standing beside each other when we sing Sunday, but that's pretty much the only time when any of my girls, either of my girls, put their hand in mine. 
But still, you know, my boys are young enough where I can hold their hands and, and sometimes even make them hold my hand. But Marshall, he has come to the point where he likes to argue this a lot. And I'll say to him, hold my hand, buddy. And he'll say, Daddy, I'm big now. I don't need to hold your hand. And sometimes he's right in the situation that I want him to to hold my hand in. He doesn't actually need to hold my hand. And I'll tell him, buddy, I know you're a big boy now. And I know you don't need to hold my hand. But that's not why I want you to hold my hand. I want you to hold my hand not because you need it, but because you love me. And, I, you know, doesn't take long. He thrusts his hand into mine, and I love that. Tell me, where does that fatherly affection come from? Where does that mama desire and affection for her children originate? Some instinct that has evolved from nothing Or did the author of life write it upon the human heart so that we would know this must be how God, who calls himself my father, who calls me his child, feels genuinely about me. This must be how God relates to me. And it's not only the experience that suggests that, but the word that straight tells us This is how God loves his children. So pray. In everything, pray. And the promise here, then, is that when we pray in everything, we will have peace. But I don't want you to miss this key element. It says, pray in everything with thanksgiving. This is so crucial for you to have peace and joy and contentment perpetually in Christ. You must pray with thanksgiving. So when you are praying that God's promises will be realized in your life again, remember how his promises have been realized in the past and give thanks to him. When you are praying for a fresh show of the mercy of God in your life, Remember how he has shown you mercy your entire life and give thanks. And when you are praying for God to do for you again, remember who he is again and give thanks to God. If you don't have peace in your heart when circumstances become difficult, I would definitely ask you, How thankful are you? When you pray, do you give thanks? Are you concentrating, focusing more upon your problem and the circumstance or upon the promises of God which are from eternity and are sealed in the blood of Jesus? Why should you be filled with doubts and fears? Has God left a trail of misery in his wake or something? that we be filled with doubt and fear? Is that the kind of reputation that God has earned with his people? That's who he is? Where is the evidence that he has ever failed? Search the record. Where has God ever failed? 
Now, someone says, okay, but we suffer, right? We suffer and we do suffer. But here's the thing that makes us to know that doesn't mean that God is unfaithful. Suffering doesn't mean God is unfaithful. He promised it. He promised that we would suffer. He promised it clearly, and he promised it frequently in his word that we would suffer. And not only did he promise that God's people would suffer, but he in fact calls us in to suffering. God is not unfaithful that we suffer and we hurt in this life. And those who deny that truth, those who get up behind the pulpit of the church and tell the people of the church that they're not going to suffer, those who conceal it are suppressors of the truth in unrighteousness. Those preachers who, who promise American dreaminess speak on behalf of the devil who is the father of lies. God is not unfaithful. And we have every reason to be thankful. So let, let's think about this diagnostic question for you this morning. When people talk to you, and they ask you, and they really want an answer, you know, how are you? Not just, how you doing? Good, you know, okay, that's enough for me. <laughs> but when they really want to know how you've been, all the tellings, all the answers that you have given to that question, what have your answers set the asker up to expect from you now? So when they ask you, how are you? What do they expect from you? Do they expect you to complain? Do they expect cynicism from you? Or even when you tell them how you are hurting, do people expect you to be thankful? I think after you get to know someone well enough, and you have so many answers to that question, how are you? You form expectations of how people are going to answer. What do you think that other people expect of you? Complaining or thanksgiving to God. If you lack peace in your heart, it's because you are not praying in everything with thanksgiving. I believe that. Because the promise of God says otherwise. That you will, if you pray in everything with thanksgiving, have the peace of God ruling your heart, guarding your heart and mind in Christ. So what is wrong? What is wrong? Well, not only the, the forgetting to be thankful, but I think fearing the circumstance more than we fear God listening to the circumstance more than we listen to God, listening to our own hearts and our doubts and fears more than we listen to God. We have to remember that circumstance is God's chisel. It's not God. The chisel, that is, is not God. It's not going to leap out of God's hand and do its own thing and, and run amok in your life. God is the master creator, and by the chisel of circumstance, he's making you. He's conforming you to the image of his son. So one thing that we have to take to heart, we must believe that God is sovereign in all things. 
We must believe that God is in charge. I mean, how can you pray about everything and in everything give thanks if you don't believe that God is in charge of everything? Right? There is nothing outside of his control. Not a moment, not a molecule. It's all in the hand of God. How can you be thankful in a circumstance if you don't believe that God did this? God did it. You can't be thankful if you don't believe that. Your circumstances are God's arrangements. And again, here is the promise. For the praying, thankful heart that's in Jesus. Verse 7. Look at it. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You will not be ruled by the doubts and the fears and the anxieties and the misgivings that will control the world going through the exact same kind of circumstance. Your heart will be guarded by the peace of God in Jesus. So that's thing number one to press into, and that's promise number one. We must pray in everything with thanksgiving, and we have the promise that the peace of God will guard us. Let's move on to verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Many Christians don't have peace in their hearts because they're not praying in everything with thanksgiving. And you know why? One key reason They don't thank God. Their hearts are not full of thanksgiving for his goodness because they don't think about it. They don't think about the goodness of God. Christians today are caught up in the the world and just going with the tide. And it's like everything that's right in front of my face on the surface, that has my attention. That has my focus. We have this tunnel vision. And we never have a thoughtful encounter with the deeper realities. We have tunnel vision focused on one thing, what's right in front of our face. So this is the second thing that we must do to press into the Lord. We must be people who ponder, who ponder things deeply, who ponder the goodness of God in Christ. Now, this is going to be a little bit different. So, allow me some leeway here. Some Christians have never thought about how amazing it is that they are even here. What is the likelihood, statistically speaking, that you and I would ever even be here? There has to be so many combinations, all extremely unlikely, that have to be worked out for you to be here today. I have two parents. They came from different places in the province of Ontario. They had to move. They they both moved north to the same proximity. And they had to meet. And they had to match. And my dad had to tell my mom how nice she looked. And she had to like that. And they had to match in marriage and commit in marriage. And eventually, here I am. 
But you think about how many times that this has to happen. Okay? Two parents and four grandparents, which means I have eight great-grandparents and 16 great-great-grandparents and 32 great-great-great-grandparents. And if I go back 10 generations, I have 1,024 ninth-great-grandparents. And if you do that, go back in time to that, that length. We're back to the time of the, the settling of, of British North America. Some of our ancestors came from Europe at that time. Others probably came later, maybe in the Irish potato famine of the 1840s or something like that. But what are the chances, chances, statistically speaking, and I'm using the word chances very loosely because I don't believe in this thing we call chance whatsoever. But just for the, the sake of argument, what are the chances, statistically speaking, that each one of your ancestors nece- necessary for you to be here would survive the 14th century Black Plague? I mean, do you realize how many ancestors, direct ancestors you have Alive way back then, the number would blow your mind because we're getting close to a million. They have to survive that. They have to survive the 19th century potato famine. They have to survive the English Civil War. And maybe if your ancestry is back into France, you know, the French Revolution. They have to survive the American Civil War. They have to migrate and survive migration and settle in proximity to one another and then match for marriage and on and on and on we could go. So statistically speaking, you are not supposed to be here today. Do you see how lucky you are to see me today? Let's step back even further. What are we doing here in a world that is even possible? An existable world. A world that is habitable. And not only habitable, but explorable, discoverable, knowable. And on top of that, beautiful. Have you ever thought about these things? Why aren't we in one of these arms of the Milky Way galaxy in one of these asteroid belts? But instead, we're in this kind of clear space in between the arms of the Milky Way that give us a clear view into the heavens. And not only that, that positioning, but the gases necessary in the atmosphere all in, you know, the right proportion so that we have this visible transparent atmosphere to see through to the heavens. You ever thought about these things? Or the fine-tuning of the laws of physics that is necessary for us to explore and discover and know this world, to experiment and invent. Okay, now let's, that's big. Let's think small. We have these, these jointed fingers of bones that are connected by ligaments attached with tendons, muscle, with muscles attached with tendons, and alive with nerves. 
that can support and grasp and feel. On the ends of arms that are jointed midway with an elbow that is bendable and rotatable. And those fingers, guided by deft eye-hand coordination, can straightaway grasp a cinnamon roll and put it into a cavity that is framed with teeth to cut and to chop and to chew, manipulate that cinnamon roll, move it to the back of the throat, and taste it all the while, sending various signals to the brainstem to interpret this thing as pleasurable, very, and not to mention the swallowing and the processing and the digesting and all of the rest. Think. I just want you to think. That's it. Ponder. Beyond what is just in front of your face. I mean, why should we go through life without ever thinking about elbows being so conveniently placed and cool? I mean, it's a good thing they're not like, it's, they're right midway. It's a good thing they're not in the midpoint of the forearm, right? Because then you'd have the cinnamon roll and you'd have to like throw it at your mouth. <laughs> or you just have to like bend down to the thing with your face and eat it that way. But God put it right here. And I think that is awesome. I don't know exactly how all of this works, but I'm amazed that it does work, and I'm amazed that it's even here to work. I tell you all of this in something resembling intelligible communication, and you can understand what I am saying, and you can actually picture it in your mind. You can see it without actually seeing it. Think about these things. Because the world that God has given is good and it's amazing. God is good. Because everything that works to sustain life is not only functional. Think about this, but it's beautiful. It's human intimacy that reproduces life. It's meals. It's food that nourishes life. And it's meals shared together that nourish another kind of life, which should be your incentive to stay and eat with us in the fellowship hall, because meals shared together nourish more than physical life. Why is it that spring breezes not only pollinate, but cool us and refresh us? Sunlight is not only for energizing, but for basking in. Everything is so functional. But why is everything so pleasant and so good and so beautiful? Because the maker is good. So think on it. What an an incredible thing God's creation is. We live in a world of elbows. We talked about that. Where elbows happen. And where cinnamon rolls happen. And Velcro. And sailboats. And lasers and roses, and CPR, and jet propulsion, and ocean tides, and rainbows, and melody, and octopus, 
and I probably should say octopi because that's the plural, and grammar, and water wells, and glass, and chalk, and cotton, and irony, and woods, and rubber bands. Let's not forget rubber bands. We live in a world where all of this happens. We live in a world where gentleness and patience and endurance and courage and compassion and marriage till death do us part and bearing another's burdens happen. We live in a world where ink and paper happen and they have the the chemical properties to What's the word? Is it adhesion? Anyway, they stick. One sticks to the other, and it sticks permanently. I love writing. I want you to think about this. We live in a world where writing happens. See, this ink can be turned and manipulated on the paper to make a distinctive squiggly. And then combined with other distinctive squigglies, those shapes can be formed into a word. And when those squigglies are put on the page by someone other than a doctor, they are legible and they communicate. But think about this. By this this ink manipulation, we trace words, We trace images, we trace concepts and ideas. By this manipulation of the ink, we can trace out wisdom. And another human being can come along, and again, as long as it's not written by a doctor, can scan over these words, discern them, and have wisdom transferred into his heart. And if these words accord with a certain reality, with a certain special truth, the truth of all truths, called the good news, by that word a human being can be born again to God and His eternal glory. We live in a world where sinners can be born again and justified and adopted into the family of God and indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. We live in a world where sinners can be reconciled and covenanted with others who have also been chosen by this God before the foundation of the world. We can be covenanted together with sinners whose times and boundaries were set by the sovereign to be in the same proximity as our own, whose destination is heaven on the new earth. We live in the world where the eternal spirit who is the maker came down and wrapped himself in flesh that that flesh might be torn and impaled by the creation for the creation that our sin might be paid for and that by his grace believing in him we might live and never die. So all of these things, straight spiritual gospel things, and realities just deeper than the physical things, like 
a ball of cotton. All of these things together lead me to to think that boredom is just stupid. I have been bored, but I don't understand boredom. I've been thinking this way for quite a while now. So several years ago, one of our students had their Facebook status as, I am bored. And I just responded to them, wiggle your fingers in front of your face. Now think about that. It is an amazing thing. I want you to think. Paul says, think on these things. Whatever is worthy of praise, whatever is excellent, whatever is honorable, true, pure, think about it. Think deeper than what is there on the surface. We have so much to be thankful for. Who do we think we are to sit there on that one day of the year that we call Thanksgiving and rack our brains not able to come up with anything? What are you thankful for? Oh, I don't know. Just give me some time. I'll come up with something. It's ridiculous. I want your life to be filled with wonder because all wonder that accords with God's truth leads to worship in spirit and truth, which is offered with our words and with our lives, which leads us to verse 9, where the apostle writes, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And this is the third thing for us to press into in our fight for joy. Pray in everything with thanks. Ponder. God's goodness deeply. And third, practice godliness. And we have this promise. This is the second promise. The first was the peace of God will guard us. Now this is the God of peace will be with us. Of all the gifts that we have talked about, of all the gifts that we enjoy, there is no gift so wondrous, no gift that we should so... Pursue as this gift, the presence of God with us. We are the people of God. And what marks us out from all the peoples of the world as God's people? It's his presence. Long ago, Moses didn't even want to think about having to go to the land of promise with an angel and not the actual presence of God. He said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? It's the presence of of God, God with us. Of course, God is with us in a number of senses. As it says in verse 5, the Lord is at hand. He is present. What does that mean? One thing, God is everywhere present. He is not restricted by space or time. He is there yesterday. He is present today. He is there tomorrow. God is everywhere present. The Lord is at hand. 
Christ is coming. He is coming again to redeem His people. He is coming to wipe out evil. He is coming to finish salvation. The Lord is at hand. This promise looks at that presence in a different element, in a different way. God is also present in His people. We have the Spirit of Christ in us. Jesus promised God is with you and He will be in you. And when the Spirit of God came, He came to indwell all the people of God. But there's something more. I think there's a fourth sense. The Bible says that God resides in all of His people, but He looks particularly to the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at His Word. Isaiah 66. He resides in all His people by His Spirit, but by His Spirit He fills those whose hearts are filled with wonder and worship and thanksgiving, who sing to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 18. Be filled with the Spirit. So when we have this promise that the God of peace will be with us, when we practice these things, practice godliness, what we have learned and heard and seen and received, through the writing of God's word. When we have this promise, our, our, lot, our eyes should light up and our hearts should immediately press in to realize this truth of the presence of God with us. That's what we're after. The Bible says if we will draw near to God, He will draw near to us. And that's looking and promising the presence of God in a unique, very significant way, different, above other promises of God's presence with us. This is above. And so the Apostle Paul, writing from prison, is filled with prayers, which are themselves filled with thanksgiving. As he is filled with thoughts, of the goodness of God in Christ. And his heart embraces Christ. And the peace of God in Christ embraces him. And the God of peace is with him. And so the apostle says, I am content in any and every circumstance. I am content. He is rejoicing in the Lord. So pray in everything with a thankful heart. If you will have that thankful heart, you need to ponder all of God's goodness in Jesus, in creation and in the new creation, in the fact that you were born in the first place and in the fact that you were born again to God and His glory. And practice. Practice, put into practice the godliness that the Word of God commands of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clear commandment of your Word to press in to praying and to pondering and to practicing godliness. 
And we thank you not only for the commandment, but for the promises of your peace to guard us and your presence to be with us so that then we can rejoice in the Lord always, so we can be content in any and every circumstance. Give us eyes to see in new ways, new things, deeply the things of God. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe. And if our hearts have now that we've grown into some measure of adulthood got bored, if we're dissatisfied, if we've lost our wonder, I pray, Father, that you would restore it to us again in Jesus. Not just for wonder's sake, but for worship's sake. So that we would give to you the worship that you alone are worthy of. Drawing near to you with our lips and our hearts. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. Thank you for your son, our Lord Jesus. And salvation in him. In his name we pray. Amen.